Well, this morning, we're going to be starting a new series. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark. And uh, as you can see here, the, the Gospel of Mark is, uh, it, there's a variety of things included in it. I'm going to be sharing a, uh, some background in just a moment, but our theme as we look through it is this idea of answering the call and experiencing the joy of discipleship, what it looks like to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. And so this morning, we're going to begin with Mark chapter 1. We'll look at the first 11 verses together. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn there with me. Mark chapter 1, starting with verse 1. And uh, this is what it says in this portion of God's Word. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to look at your word together today. We're so grateful for what you reveal to us in it. And Lord, as we begin a study of the Gospel of Mark, we pray that you'd help us to understand the things that we're reading in this portion of Scripture, in this entire book. Lord, we pray that we would grow in our our walk with you. We pray that we would become strong and fully devoted followers of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that we would take discipleship seriously, that we would be people who actively seek to live as disciples, that we would be active and involved in the discipleship of others, particularly in our own households. And Lord, we pray that your name would be honored in the ways in which we seek to live our lives. We pray that it would all be in line with what you teach us in your word. So Lord, we pray that as we embark on the the study of this book, that you give us your wisdom and your guidance, and that you just develop our understanding through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Gospel of Mark, if you're unfamiliar with it, uh, it's the shortest gospel. It's one of the four gospels that are included in the New Testament. It's written by uh, a guy named Mark, although if you look at what Scripture says, his name was, was John Mark. I think to reduce confusion, people primarily started calling him Mark because uh, the commonness of the name John was pretty evident when you look throughout uh, the New Testament. But Mark was a companion of the Apostle Peter, spent a lot of time with Peter, he he did a lot of work with Peter, Uh, and the Gospel of Mark is believed to be the earliest of the four Gospels 
to have been written down. It may have been written maybe about 20 to 30 years after Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection. And again, it's one of the earliest accounts of the life and the teaching and the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter, so when you think of of Mark's source material, the Apostle Peter was the primary source that Mark relied upon as he wrote this book. So in many respects, you could look at this gospel and you could say, I mean, you know, we call this the gospel of Peter. You know, Peter was the main source that, that Mark was using as he wrote these things down. And what Mark had as a goal was basically to, to preserve an accurate record of the words that Jesus said and the work that Jesus accomplished during the course of his earthly ministry. Now, speaking of Peter, when we read through this book, as we go through it, you're going to notice a lot of detail regarding Peter's response to Christ's ministry, because keep in mind, it's Peter that's, that's the one that's primarily recounting these things to Mark and telling Mark firsthand the things that he saw Jesus do and the things that he heard Jesus say. And so Mark is writing these things down as Peter's giving him this information and as the Holy Spirit is guiding his pen. And so you can see a lot of basically like insider uh, glimpses into Peter's response to the things that Jesus was doing. And in fact, one of the most interesting things to me when I read through the Gospel of Mark, I actually get a kick out of it. The things that you read about Peter in the Gospel of Mark. So keep in mind, let me say this before I say that, finish the sentence I just started. If you were dictating a book to somebody else, and you were one of the people that is referenced multiple times in it, how do you think you would portray yourself to somebody else? Do you think you would try to make yourself look good? Do you think you would try to make yourself look favorable? Well, when you read through the Gospel of Mark, one of the things that will probably stand out to us is the fact that much of what we read about Peter, Peter being Mark's main source, much of what we read about Peter is not flattering. It actually makes Peter look kind of bad sometimes, and he looks impulsive frequently, and it looks like he speaks without thinking almost always, (laughs) and he looks a little too aggressive sometimes, and uh, and sometimes he just looks straight up foolish. And it's kind of interesting when you think about that because Peter's the main source of this book, and he doesn't try and make himself look good. As, uh, as the content of this book is being dictated. The other Gospels, when you look at the other Gospels, they also share some things that Peter did that, that were, you know, could, could have done, been done a little bit better. Uh, but the other Gospels speak of Peter in a more flattering tone than the Gospel of Mark, which is the Gospel that Peter was the main source for. Now, when you read through this Gospel and you contemplate the teaching of Christ and you think about the things that Jesus is saying here, one of the things you'll notice is that Jesus has a strong emphasis on discipleship, what it means to be a fully devoted follower of His. And what He does is He invites us to have a deep, personal, abiding relationship with Him that goes beyond knowing Him at a distance. We live in a world that at this present day, Many people, some would even argue most people on this planet have at least heard of the name Jesus and maybe know certain things about him, but a much smaller percentage know him in a relational or personal way. And so Jesus desires that we have a up-close personal relationship with him that goes beyond knowing him at a distance. We're called to walk with him. We're called to obey his teaching. We're called to see life and see people through his eyes. 
and to just trust Him completely in all circumstances. And as the story of Christ's earthly life and ministry unfolds, you're going to see Mark emphasizing these things as Jesus taught them, and as Peter dictated these things to Mark. And this portion of Scripture begins in verse 1 with Mark saying it this way. He starts it off and he says, "...the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ..." the Son of God. So you have Mark starting this off by telling us that this is the gospel or the good news. So when you see gospel, understand that it means good news. So he's saying this is the the good news of Jesus Christ. Who's Jesus Christ? He says the Son of God. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's a very interesting way to start a book. But right at the outset, makes it very clear that this book is going to contain good news. Now, I read a lot of books. Maybe some of you read a lot of books. And a lot of times when I'm starting out a book, I often wonder, what's this book going to be like? What kind of journey is it about to take me on? And I think it's very interesting that Mark starts us right off and he says, you're about to hear some good news. Some good news is on the way. Interesting way to begin a book. But right at the outset, he makes it clear that this book is going to contain good news. And we might even be able to say that it contains the very best news because in the coming pages, you're going to have Mark revealing who Jesus is and how eternal life can be obtained through him, and what it looks like to walk with him on a day-to-day basis, knowing him up close in a world filled with conflict, in a world filled with suffering, in a world filled with fear and condemnation. This truly is great news that we can have peace through Jesus Christ that is an everlasting peace, and Mark's going to explain how that's obtained. Mark also makes a point to explain that Jesus is more than just a teacher or a prophet. And he does that right at the outset here when he references him as the Son of God. He says he's the Son of God, meaning he's the long-promised Messiah. That's who Jesus is. Christ's nature is divine. Mark wants to set that up as a premise right at the start of the book. He's trying to help us understand that he's one with the Father, he's one with the Spirit. Jesus took on flesh and lived among us for a season, but he has no beginning and he has no end of days. He's God the Son, the Son of God, a member of the divine trinity. And because it's the will of God that as many people as possible receive life in Jesus Christ, preparation and announcements were made of Christ's arrival ahead of time. Now, when you're reading through the Old Testament, in this past year we spent a lot of time looking at various places in the Old Testament. And so you see this over and over and over again in the Old Testament. We come across references many references to the day when Jesus the Messiah would come to earth. If you've ever spent time reading through the book of Genesis, you could see right after humanity sinned against the Lord, right after humanity rebelled, we were promised that Jesus was going to come. We were promised that this, this one who's referred to as the seed of the woman would come. And all throughout the Old Testament, you have these references to Jesus Christ and his future ministry, and all these things announced. And when you go through the, just the theology of the Old Testament, you see that his life and his ministry, it's symbolized and it's foreshadowed through a variety of things, through ceremonies, through feasts, through patriarchs, through prophets, through events, all sorts of things, basically telling us, get ready because he's coming. Get ready because he's coming. Ironically, we live in a, in a day and age where Jesus has given us that same instruction because he's coming again. Get ready because he's coming. We live with the same anticipation, essentially, that believers during the Old Testament era lived. And for thousands of years, 
His arrival was anticipated. It was prophetically announced. And so Mark, as he's putting this book together under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, he acknowledges that. In fact, he quotes from Isaiah. When you look at Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So all throughout the Old Testament, you have announcements pointing us to Jesus. And then when you get to Isaiah, one of the things Isaiah, Isaiah speaks of Jesus so many times throughout the course of uh, his prophetic book. But one of the things that he reveals is that there'd be not just announcements of Jesus, but one who would directly announce Jesus, an announcer or a messenger. And he describes him here. He says, you know, as the Lord is speaking, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And Mark here makes a point to quote the prophet Isaiah as Isaiah is speaking of this messenger who would prepare the way for the Messiah when the time had come for Christ's earthly ministry to begin. Now, Isaiah lived and prophesied and wrote his book about 700 years before Christ came to this earth. So this prophecy, as it's being quoted, it's about 700 years old as it's being quoted, and the messenger, it's from Isaiah chapter 40, and the messenger that Isaiah is referencing here is a man we typically refer to as John the Baptist, or some people refer to him as John the Baptizer. John did more than baptize, by the way, but that's typically the nickname we give to him, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. John, this announcer that Isaiah was prophesying and that Mark is about to set up the gospel here to acknowledge, John was a relative of Jesus on on his mother's side of the family. We're told John's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were advanced in age when he was born. So it's kind of interesting to realize that the messenger who would speak of Jesus and help prepare the hearts of the people, that you could look at his birth and say, yeah, I mean, that was very much a miraculous birth because Zechariah and Elizabeth were advanced in age. And I believe that the scripture reveals that to us about them so that we understand that, that what we're looking at isn't something that can just be you know, just fully discounted as something natural taking place. There's more to it than that. Uh, the Lord was doing something miraculous for them and through them. But they were advanced in age when John was born, and they were made aware even before he was born. And this is a fascinating thing. I mean, they, they were made aware of what his life would entail. Now, those of you that have children, I mean, I, I see when we dismiss the kids for children's church, I guess it's all of you. Um, do you. Do you wonder what your kids are going to do? You know, do you wonder what kind of life they're going to live? I know that's like a silly question, because of course you do, right? Are they going to make good choices? What kind of mistakes are they going to make? Are they going to have a good career? Are they going to listen to your counsel at a young age, or are they going to make a whole bunch of mistakes and then come around later in life and be like, Mom, Dad, you were right. Wish I listened a couple decades earlier. These are the type of things that we wonder about, right? You think, are you going to make a, are you going to make a difference in this world, kid? You're going to be good to people? You're going to have a good life? We wonder about our children. I've got four kids. I wonder about them. I pray for them. I don't think I've ever prayed as much in my life as I have since the Lord has blessed my wife and I with children. Anyone identify with that? Isn't it interesting how you go through a season of life primarily praying for yourself, or at least I did. Maybe you're not like this, but 
I think the majority of my prayers were about me. And then the Lord blessed us with kids, and I find that the majority of my prayers, I think, are about them. Um, you know, the first people I think to pray for in the morning, the first people that I, I think to pray for as I end my, my night, the first people I think to pray for when I'm on a long drive. Um, and here, John and Elizabeth, or excuse me, Zechariah and Elizabeth were told about John, and they were made aware that the Lord's hand would be upon this boy, set apart from birth, and that he was going to speak to the people of Israel in a powerful way. The Lord was going to empower him to speak to the people of Israel, and there, it wasn't just their ears that were going to hear what he had to say. Their hearts were going to hear what he was saying. It wasn't just going to be words that came out of his mouth. Those words were going to come as the, the Spirit of God worked through him and went directly to the, to the hearts. Those words went directly to the hearts of the people of Israel and encouraged them, listen, you've been running away from God your whole life. Don't keep doing that. Get your heart ready. You're about to see miraculous things in your generation. Pay attention because God's about to speak to this generation in a very, very special way, and they were encouraged to walk with God. If they had been distant from God, they were encouraged to walk with God. If they had been just distant from their families, they were encouraged to reconcile with their families, to repent of their sin. Come back to focusing on the Lord and prepare for the ministry of Jesus. I love how it's described in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 1, when you look at verses 13 to 17, you have the angel Gabriel speaking to Zechariah, and he says to Zechariah, he says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, typically, you would name your son after yourself in that context. And yet he was told, No, name him John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Now, that right there, man, if an angel showed up and said, you're going to have joy and gladness, and people are going to rejoice at the birth of your son. Wouldn't you just be like, yes, yes, thank you, Lord. This is wonderful. Thank you for sending me an angel to tell me that. I don't even have to wait to figure it out. You're going to tell me this before the kid's even born? Yes, right? You'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he, will go before, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is what John was going to do. This is how John's life was going to be used. Isn't that a fascinating thing? What a wonderful thing to see. And so just as Isaiah had prophesied and just as Gabriel had spoken to, to Zechariah, uh, John was going to fulfill a ministry that was ordained by God, a ministry he was ordained to complete even before the day he was born. And so John invited the people to prepare their hearts for, for Jesus. And he encouraged them, look, confess repent of your sins. Uh, to, he, he encouraged them to publicly demonstrate that they had confessed and repented of their sin by being baptized by him in the Jordan River. In fact, uh, in, in Mark's gospel, going back to Mark's gospel, when you look at verses 4 and 5, 
We're told John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. By the way, that's a different baptism from what we practice. Our baptism, Christian baptism, and this baptism of repentance, similar in appearance, similar, you you would look at that and you would say, oh, is it the same thing? It's not the same thing. Um, They were identifying with this message of repentance. When When we're being baptized, what are we doing? We're making a, a proclamation of faith identifying with Jesus Christ, his, his death and resurrection, the new life that we have in him. But here, they're being identified with this message of repentance in preparation for what Christ was about to do. Our baptism is acknowledging what Christ has already done and what he does through us and the new life we have through him. But here it says again, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. It's a beautiful thing to see. Preparation was being made for the Messiah. Preparation was being made for the ministry of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I think is really fascinating when you look at John's life and when you look at his ministry, there was a humility in John's ministry. Scripture references the fact that, that, you know, it shows, it demonstrates that John had a humility in how he went about what he was doing. Even though, the, even though the Lord had called him and raised him up to speak to the people of Israel and prepare them for the ministry of Christ, you have John demonstrating that he clearly understands that the multitudes that were coming to him to hear him preach, they weren't really there for him. They're not there for him, right? His job was to point them to whom? To Jesus. Not to himself, but to point them to Jesus. John wanted to see Jesus elevated, not himself. John wanted the people to see that that Jesus would offer them greater things than baptism with water. That he would offer them greater things than that. And in fact, John revealed that Jesus would baptize them with the Holy Spirit. And that's precisely what Jesus does for all who trust in him for eternal life. And when you look at Mark chapter 1... Uh, verses 6 through 8, it gives us a little more detail, and it gives us a little more description about John's appearance and his ministry, and it says, now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. Let me just pause there for just a second. I don't don't know that these details were necessarily told to Zechariah and Elizabeth. It's like, your son's going to be great. He's going to do great things. Oh, wow. What a boy. He's going to wear camel's hair. He's going to eat bugs. Uh, but he'll be a great guy. He'll be a great guy, right? Do you look at that? If, if, you know, if you, if you just pictured your child in the wilderness wearing animal skins, eating bugs, would you be like, hey, uh, do you want to live among the civilized? Like, what do you want to do? You know what I've discovered over time? If you read through church history, sometimes it's people that seem the most eccentric to us that actually end up getting used in some very, very interesting ways. If you've got that quirky friend, um, you know, look at them right now if they're here with you. If you've got that quirky friend, Rose and Cheryl, you both looked at each other. So what does that mean, right? If you've got that, if you've got that quirky friend, that person that you think, they've got a unique personality. They go about things in a way that's a little different from others. Understand that it's typically the people that shake things up a little bit 
that really get used of God in very interesting ways. And I look at John, and you, you could see, now obviously he's ministering in the spirit and the power of Elijah, so you have some Old Testament connection here with, a, with Elijah and Elijah's prophetic ministry. But prophets didn't come to just blend in. That's the thing, when you read through Scripture, the prophets don't just come to blend in. The idea isn't that they just appear like everybody else, dress like everybody else, speak like everybody else. Usually they come, most of the time they're killed because they're so different. And in fact, in John's case, he was killed because he was willing to confront sin of political leaders. And they're like, hey, uh, you know what, we don't like that. And so his head was eventually removed from his body after he spent some time in prison. So you look at that and you think, well, that's not exactly the life that you would want for your child, is it? But then again, if you're doing something that the Lord has called your child to do at the end of the day, you look at it and you say, all right, an unconventional earthly life that glorifies the Lord is better than a life that just kind of goes with the flow and never makes any waves and never does anything interesting. And, uh, and here it says, John was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And I love reading John's words and his attitude about the ministry of Jesus Christ, his attitude toward Jesus. When we see what he says, when we see how he acts, I think in this world, we're typically encouraged to do what? Make a name for ourselves, right? That's what we're encouraged to do. Make a name for yourself. You know, you got, you got a few short decades, make a name for yourself during that time, right? We want to be thought of as a big deal. We want to be remembered. Many people think it's the biggest honor maybe to have their name on something public or visible, right? How many post offices do you see that have the names of politicians that are still alive? It's like, congratulations, a post office is named after you. Awkward, we invented emails, so we don't use it quite as much. But that building still has your, has your name. You really accomplished something. Also, at some point, that building's going to get torn down. Good for you, right? We want our name on something, a stadium, uh, a hospital, a building, right? The cover of a book. You know, we want our name out there. We want to make a name for ourselves. And then those that are too young to maybe earn some of those accolades, getting your name on something, what do they do? They take the shortcut, right? It's called graffiti. It's the same spirit, isn't it? It's the same exact mindset as getting your name on a hospital. It's the same exact mindset as getting your name on the cover of a book or on a building or a stadium or a post office or whatever it may be. Some people just take the shortcut and they're like, I think I write my name on a bridge today. I think I write my name on a building today. You know, Maybe they'd even graffiti a book. I don't know. But the point, I remember once, this is an aside, I remember when I was uh, directing the Pocono Mountain Bible Conference, I walked into this one room where a, uh, a group of teenagers had been meeting, they were middle school teenagers, young teenagers, and they'd been meeting for Bible class, and I walk into the room, and I look over at the trim on the window where some of the seats were, and I saw written on the window, thankfully in pencil, uh, on the window trim was the name of one of the campers who was there that week. And I'm like, oh, interesting. And uh, I think he had done it during that Bible class, wrote his name on it. I guess he wanted to be remembered. And I was like, well, I don't want your name on the windowsill. So 
I politely pulled him aside and I said, hey, can you follow me for a second? And I didn't ask him if he did it because obviously he did it. I don't think anyone else was going to be writing his name on one of the window sills, right? You know, and I'd like to dedicate this window in honor of my friend Jacob, right? And I said, hey, come on in here. And he's like, what? And I didn't even ask him because I didn't want him to lie or whatever. I said, look, you wrote your name on the windowsill. Thankfully, it's in pencil. Erase it, please. Okay. <laughs> and he erased it. And I was like, do you do a good job? Yeah, I did a good job. Is it thorough? Yeah, it's thorough. All right, don't do that again. Yes, sir. All right. But that same spirit, you know, we, we want, like, the whole, people think that the goal of life, and maybe you've been influenced by someone in your life, that the goal of life, the goal of your life is to make a name for yourself. Like, really carve out your niche in this world. Make a name for yourself. And then you look at John's attitude, and his goal was never to make his own name great. That ministers to me when I look at that. I think, I think that's important to notice. His goal was not to make his name great. His goal was to use his brief life, and his life was rather brief. His goal was to use his brief life to point as many people to Jesus as he possibly could. I'll tell you what, if you use your life to point as however long your life is, if you're the person in this room that lives the longest, and, and you, you, you use your life to point as many people to, to Jesus as you possibly can, you have used your life well. And if you're the person that, that lives the shortest among us and you use your life to point people to Jesus, you have used your life well. And that was John's goal, not to point people to himself, but to point people to Jesus Christ, as many as he possibly could. And that's a goal that I think we should all adopt. Now, have you ever heard the name Nicholas von Zinzendorf? Anyone planning to name a child anything close to that? Anyone have a child named anything close to that? Um, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf was a bishop in the Moravian Church quite a while ago, and he had some advice for the people that he used to instruct. He used to instruct and disciple missionaries, and he would give them good counsel, and he would give them good advice, and one of the big pieces of advice he would give them is this. He would tell them, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's what he would tell them. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. You ever hear that phrase? Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. It's like, what's the goal of my life? Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Well, I don't know that we should necessarily make it our goal to be forgotten. I, I, you know, I appreciate his sentiment. Um, I actually kind of like knowing about my ancestors and some of the things that we can learn uh, from people in generations prior to us, but I like the humility in that statement. The goal is not so much that we draw attention to ourselves or make our name great, the idea is that we preach the gospel and, and point people to Jesus Christ during the course of our earthly life. Our mission in life is not to be personally praised or personally esteemed. Our mission is to glorify Christ, who is the source of our life and the source of our salvation. And so you have, you have John the Baptist. He continues his evangelistic ministry. He encourages the people of Israel, the children of Israel. He encourages them to prepare their hearts for Jesus and in the midst of people being baptized and identifying with this message of repentance that he's preaching, Jesus himself comes to John for baptism as well. And when Scripture describes Jesus doing that, I can't help but ask the question, why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus come to John to be baptized? Because John is offering a baptism of repentance, and yet Jesus is without sin. So why would Jesus accept a baptism of repentance or participate in a baptism of repentance even though he's sinless? The sinless Son of God 
participating in a baptism of repentance. Why did he ask John to do this for him? By the way, when you look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, it tells us about it. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So this was something that took a little persuasion to convince John to actually do this for Jesus. But Jesus said, let it be so. Let it be so now, for it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. It's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And John said, okay. He consented, right? Now, there are several theories why Jesus did this. I'll present several of them to us. Curious to see your reactions to these theories. These are theories people have come up, good theological theories why people say Jesus decided to be baptized in this context. Some people believe Jesus was initiating his role as a priest. He was, at this point, at the age of 30, and uh, when you look back at the Levitical priesthood as it's described in Numbers chapter 4, you see the priesthood being initiated at 30, for those that are referenced in that passage, although if you look at uh, other seasons of that priesthood, it was also done at different ages. At one point, it was, it was like 25, and another time it was 20. So some people say, well, maybe it's not that. But when you look at Numbers 4, it does talk about this idea of priests, their priestly role being inaugurated when they were 30 years old. So some people say, well, maybe Jesus was announcing himself as our great high priest in this moment at the age of 30 in a public declaration. So that's one theory. Others say that this was for him to publicly acknowledge the, his, the uh, messenger, so John, as his forerunner, so to acknowledge the one who is acknowledging him. So some people say that that may have been uh, at least part of Christ's reason in doing this. Some believe that this was a way for Jesus to publicly identify with the sinners that he had come to save. So some say, you know, as people were, were identifying with this message of repentance here, this was a moment where Jesus was saying, I'm going to identify with the, the very people I've come to save and participate in this. Others think that this was symbolic and that it was a, a public declaration of Christ's prophetic ministry. So those are some of the major theories, and there very well may be some significance and some value in each of those theories, but I'll, I'll tell you for the most part, when I look at it, I, I still wonder, even after reading those theories and thinking about those theories for some years, I look at that and I think maybe that's the case or maybe it was something else. But one thing I do know for certain, and this I, I truly, truly appreciate and I hope we'll notice this this morning, the occasion of Christ's baptism, what it did do was it provided a very powerful example of the existence of the Trinity. You have a very powerful and visible example for those that were in this context, the existence of the Trinity. One God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because when you look at Mark 1, starting with verse 9, it reads this way. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove... And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So in that moment, 
at the baptism of Jesus Christ, we see the Father, we see the Son, we see the Holy Spirit. That is not insignificant. That's something that is meant to stand out, not only to the people in that generation that witnessed that with their eyes and heard that with their ears, but that's supposed to get our attention as well. Now, when Jesus came to this earth, one of the things that he makes clear when you read through the Gospels, when he came to this earth, he did so in accordance with the Father's will. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are united three in one, three persons united as one, one God. And Jesus did his ministry, he accomplished his ministry in accordance with the Father's will, And then when you look at what Scripture also reveals to us, when Jesus went about His earthly ministry, He did so as one who was empowered by the Holy Spirit. So in Christ's earthly ministry, you have Him acting on behalf or acting for the benefit of humanity in accordance with the Father's will, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We see the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, here's something that I wonder about. Uh, I don't know why the Trinitarian nature of God is not referenced or mentioned as much in present day as it ought to be, but the example that's given to us in this passage is something that we want to take to heart. If you genuinely want to understand God's nature more, if you genuinely want to understand what it's like to walk with the Lord, we need to understand how He's revealed Himself to us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here's the thing, keeping in in mind the example of Christ in this context During our brief sojourn in this world, and this is where I want to finish up today, we're only only here for a brief period of time. We have a very brief period of time to, to do what the Lord's called us to do, but in this brief period of time, in this brief sojourn, we're called to live like Jesus. That's what Scripture invites us to do. We're called to live like Jesus. We're called to minister to others in His name and to carry ourselves like He did toward others with grace with compassion, with mercy, with love, with honesty, just as Christ did. And if we really want to get serious about living as Christ lived, we need to be mindful to do what He did. We need to be mindful to submit our will to the Father's will. We need to be mindful to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit as we fulfill our life's mission. Just If we say, I want to live like Christ did, well, what did Christ do? He submitted His will to the Father and enacted his ministry under the power of the Holy Spirit. Is that not an example that we're supposed to follow? We're supposed to do the same thing. Because relying on our own will, this is the danger. This is a weird way to end a sermon, but I'm going to end it this way anyway, with like a cautionary note. Relying on our own will and relying on our own own power, right? If you're trying to go through life relying on your own will instead of submitting your will to the will of the Father. If you're trying to go through life relying exclusively on your own power instead of relying on the power the Holy Spirit gives us, if we we make the mistake of relying on our own will and our power, this is what it leads to. Legalism, vanity, and pride. So if you want to live a life characterized by legalism, vanity, and pride, ignore the Father's will and rely on your own power. But if you want to copy Jesus, understanding your mission in this world, Glorifying the name of the Lord, it's important to remember the example that Christ gives us in his earthly ministry, submission to the Father's will, and empowerment by the Holy Spirit, depending on the Holy Spirit to empower us, and 
just as John the Baptist was seeking to do, seeking to give glory to Jesus in the process. Because what does that do? It fosters a spirit of humility, and I think it positions our lives to become useful tools in the hands of God. This uh, coming week on Wednesday night, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 5. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is found in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 5. It's found two other places in Scripture as well. But in 1 Peter 5, 5, it tells us God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so I look at that and I, I, I combine that with the things that we see here in the life and ministry of Christ and then the demonstration of following Christ that we see in John the Baptist. We don't want to be people who rely on our own will and our own power. We don't want to be people who are filled with vanity and conceit and legalistic pride. If we walk in humility, submitting our will over to the Lord, if we entrust ourselves to His care, we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, we seek to glorify the name of Christ. Don't be surprised if the Lord does amazing things in your life that strike you as unconventional and maybe a bit unpredictable. But it's the people that submit themselves over to the Lord in humility that get to watch the demonstration of His power in their lives. And that's a beautiful thing. And even, you know, even as we think about our, our own children and the generations that come after us, Pray that this would be a concept that they would grasp as well. When you think about their life going well and will they make something of themselves, will they make a name for themselves, scrap that plan. Just pray that the Lord would glorify His name in their life and that they would walk with Him in humility and that they would rely on His power in every context and He will guide and direct the course that their lives take and you'll get to see amazing things done in their lives as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for who you are and what you show us in your word about your nature, about your will, about your desire to interact with humanity and, and rescue us, Lord, from our own vanity, our pride, our silliness, our foolishness. Lord, when we look at what Scripture reveals, you show us that when we, when we go our own way, we just embrace just unbelievably foolish things. And Lord, we've all done that. We all know that that's an experience that, that we as human beings have wrestled with and wrestled through. But then, Father, you demonstrate for us the manner of living that you've called us to through your Son, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth and lived the perfect life on our behalf because we couldn't live it. And in living the perfect life, he showed us what it means to submit to your will. And in living the perfect life, he showed us what it means to work in the power of your spirit. So, Father, we're grateful for who you are. We're grateful for, for what you do. We're grateful for your unfolding plan for mankind's redemption that you've been accomplishing through your son, Jesus Christ. We're grateful that we get to be included in that plan. And again, Father, we pray that we would just go about life in such a way that we bring glory to the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and that we would just submit ourselves over to you, Lord. It's so easy to live for ourselves. We know how easy it is because we've done it in so many respects. We think about ourselves constantly. We, even when we lift up our prayers before your throne, Lord, I have to confess that there are seasons that I've primarily spent just praying for myself. And Lord, here we find ourselves at a spot in life where 
When it really comes down to it, you remind us that it's not about us. We get to be included in what you're doing, but really it's all about you. So, Lord, we pray that we would be people who just give up this idea of trying to make a name for ourselves in this world and that we would just glorify the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, as your Spirit empowers us to do so. Thank you so much for this opening section from the Gospel of Mark and the things that are revealed to us through these words. Thank you for speaking through Peter as he spoke to Mark. Thank you for speaking through Mark as he penned these things down. And thank you, Lord, for the ministry of your Holy Spirit helping us to make sense of what we've just taken time to read and study together. We love you, Lord. We commit ourselves to you now. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.